This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Oh, and welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. This is The Conspiracy Show. Music's a little hot. Let me start over again there in case you didn't hear me. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. This is The Conspiracy Show. We just love the music so much that we just, you know, we have it at 11. And uh, sometimes it drowns me out, and that's okay. I'd rather hear the song than my voice. <laughs> that's all right, Ian. You're a rock and roller. You dig the tunes. I get it. Thank you. This is The uh, the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Congratulations. You have found us. Uh, Ian Robertson is here twisting the knobs and turning the dials, and Albert Vinzel also here. Albert, of course, running our HOA hangout on air tonight. Uh, to join, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. Let me spell the last name, S as in Simon, Y, because I love you, R-E-double-T, at Richard Serrett. Go to the top of the feed and find the tweet with the HOA link. Just click on it, and voila, you're in. And you can see me in studio. Uh, I'm not saying it's pretty, uh, although I have uh, shaved and combed my hair. So there you go. Uh, the flying car is here, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, indeed. We've been awaiting the arrival of the flying car for, what, 50 years since uh, someone mentioned earlier in studio? The Jetsons. Yes, and that's like 50 years ago. Uh, it's always been sort of held up as a harbinger, an indicator uh, that the future has arrived. Flying cars. Uh, Paul... Moeller is standing by, and uh, he's an inventor who has designed a prototype of a flying car. It's called the Sky Car. Get this. It, sit, it fits in a single-car garage, although nobody parks in their garage, right, <laughs> up here in Canada. Uh, nobody can park in their garage. However, this would fit theoretically in a single-car garage, and it takes off and lands vertically. It's designed to fly at over 300 miles per hour, and it can be driven on the street, uh, to your nearby heliport, where it will uh, use something called an automated highway in the sky. It's called HITS. We'll find out about that. It's all under development uh, by the U.S. government. Under development by the U.S. government. Well, maybe my old uh, colleague George Janescu here was right. That means it'll be another 50 years before it comes to fruition. We'll find out. Uh, get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet.ca. Go to the radio page. Click on The Conspiracy Show. That's your portal to this radio program. And while there, don't forget to register. It's quick, easy, and free. Uh, and that will gain you access to membership-only areas like the uh, past show audio archives, which go back, I believe, as far as, what is it, Albert, the summer of 2012? We have shows going back at least that far. Uh, and while you're on The Conspiracy Show page, check out the slide carousel uh, up at the top. Those are the those revolving slides. And Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits, fascinating news items. You may want to check out a story from a very august 
periodical, The Atlantic Monthly. And the article is called, I love this title, If You're Not Paranoid, You're Crazy. Uh, As government agencies and tech companies develop more and more intrusive means of watching and influencing people, how can we live free lives? So there you go. Now even the Atlantic Monthly is sort of cottoning on to the uh, the whole idea um, of, uh, you know, conspiracies and uh, surveillance and so forth. Uh, I tell you, this stuff is getting so mainstream pretty soon, uh, you know, it'll be on The View. Uh, There's also an article from the Huffington Post about tonight's guest, uh, Paul Moeller, and his aforementioned flying car, and that'll serve as a nice primer uh, for tonight's conversation. The article from Huffington's Bill Robinson is titled, Tech Future, Hold On, Paul Moeller's Sky Car is Coming. So, why don't we uh, dive right in, uh, having said that. Paul Moeller founded the Moeller International and has served as the company's president since its formation. He holds a master's in engineering and Ph.D. from McGill University, and he was a professor of mechanical and aeronautical engineering at the University of California, Davis, from 1963 to 75, where he developed the aeronautical engineering program. In 1972, he founded Supertrap Industries and was CEO, as Supertrap became the most recognized international name in high-performance engine silencing systems. Supertrap Industries was sold in 1988. In 1983, Dr. Moeller founded the Moeller International to develop powered lift aircraft. Under his direction, the company completed contracts with NASA, the NOSC, DARPA, NRL, Harry Diamond Labs, Hughes Aircraft Company, California Department of Transportation, and the U.S. Army, Navy, and Air Force. Uh, These contracts included the development and deployment of numerous unmanned aerial vehicles and Wankel-based engines. Dr. Moeller has received 43 patents, including the first U.S. patent on a fundamentally new form of power lift aircraft. Paul, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good, thank you. Pleasure to be with you. My pleasure. Now, let let me make sure I pronounce... Did I pronounce your last name? Is it Moeller or Moeller? Mahler. Mahler. All right. Now, we have, as I mentioned earlier, we have been anticipating the arrival of the flying car uh, for at least 50 years. Uh, what's taking so long? Well, I think the, the fundamental problem is that the, a vertical takeoff aircraft is in many ways like the Hummingbird. It requires a very powerful power plant. In the Hummingbird's case, he has a very... The, the bird has a very high metabolism that gives him the kind of power he needs. But it is a uh, unusually power requirement during the vertical takeoff mode that, of course, can reduce once you're going forward and you fly like an airplane. But what's missing was a power plant that would make that possible. And so much of our time over the last decades, really, has been developing that power plant, that engine that, that would be able to lift uh, to over 2,000 pounds of weight uh, and uh, and you know in the form of four passengers and a roughly fifteen hundred pound aircraft into the air vertically, and and so what have you been able to accomplish? Uh, what innovation have you developed that others have not been able to do? Well, we started off with the with the Wankel engine, the rotary Wankel engine that was invented in Germany, and at one time was thought to have a great future. But I think it was misapplied as far as where it was put. It's, it had a future in aviation more than it had in the automobile industry. 
we acquired some of the first engines back in the 60s and began a research and development program. And now, you know, a couple hundred million dollars later in today's dollars, we have an engine small enough you could hold the palm of your hand that would drive your car down the highway at 65 miles an hour. Now, uh, we hear about Amazon, um, you know, thinking about or on the cusp of delivering our, our parcels and packages uh, using drones. And there are also, now granted, those are unmanned uh, aircraft, but I'm just thinking, you know, the, the complication of having uh, all of this traffic in the air, uh, you know, drones flying everywhere, and now add to that mix flying cars. I mean, it would be chaos, I'm thinking. Now, <laughs> above and beyond the idea of developing, you know, this Wankel engine that has the, the power for vertical liftoff and, and, and landings and so forth, what about the, the, the other consideration, logistically? How, how could we manage that kind of traffic up in the air? Well, I think the, the best thing that's ever happened is these driverless cars, because if you can put a, uh, or you can create a driverless car and, and operate in the streets of San Francisco in an environment that is at least an order of magnitude more complicated than that in the air, you obviously are able to understand everything that's going around you in a way that's incredible compared to what you need to make sure that somebody in the air, that you're not going to run into them. So really, this is this driverless cars is the forefront of where we're going with this technology. It's not hard to, to extend that thinking to imagine how much easier it is to do that in the air than it is on the ground. And, and uh, tell me about the, um, these, uh, these highways uh, you're call- in the air. You're calling it HITS. What does that mean exactly? Well, it's really, uh, there's no real physical highway, of course. It's a, a software, hardware, uh, hardware to the extent of the electronics that might be involved in it, or mostly software in terms of how that uh, information is processed. But what it really does is it locates every aircraft in the air very precisely. The interesting thing is we do that with commercial airliners today. Not many people know that more often than not, the airplane they're flying in, commercial airline, it is landed automatically. And in fact, it's considered far safer to land them automatically rather than manually any longer. So we are moving in that direction. Once we have everybody located, which is not that difficult with GPS, and some of the other support items, we just have to determine the paths in which they're allowed to go and to make sure they fall on that path. And one of the ways you make sure is you don't have people having control of the vehicle when they're in the air. They they drive to their vertiport from their garage, perhaps, code in their destination, and then sit back and read or play computer games. Ah, well, that's interesting. So you wouldn't need a pilot's license then? No. No, you don't need a pilot's license for this at all, this vision. In fact, you don't even need a pilot's license for what we're doing right now, but you do need what's called a pilot certificate because you still have to know the rules of the air. But with our aircraft, they're so easy to fly because of computers. Everybody, every kid can fly a drone. Um, so easy to fly that it, it won't be a problem for anybody to get in this and be able to fly it. You just have to be very controlled when you're in it because you're going fast and people around you are going fast they have to be very well precisely controlled. So when we, when you say that um, this highway in the sky hits is under development by the U.S. government, what does that mean? I mean, how, how soon are we from this becoming reality? 
Well, we have the highway right now. As I said, we just need to expand the number of roads, if you want to call that. There are highways up there. Right now, there's a specific set of highways that the commercial airlines use where they're precisely on those airline routes, and the pilot doesn't have to fly the aircraft. He just sits back and and puts it on autopilot, and the aircraft is taken to wherever he wants to go. That has to be expanded, of course, because we're talking about orders of magnitude, more people. But even if you put orders of magnitude, more people in the air, they'd still be miles apart, except near cities where where they may be coming into land. We don't we don't appreciate that the space above us is basically unused in the relative sense, and of course the highways are overused. So there's this going to be a major change. It's going to make a lot of difference in people's lives. Oh, for sure. Uh, but but again, could you give us? Is it possible to give us? A timeline? Are we talking 10 years, 20 years, 5 years? Mm, that's always a tough one because, as you said earlier, the issue, there is a legislative issue here, and uh, things have to get very bad before the government tends to move quickly. We have reason to believe that there will be a reasonable number of these in the air within 5 years, but nothing that would probably affect most people's lives. Five years, wow. That's uh... I would say ten years, and driven by the fact that the highways are becoming much more difficult. On the other hand, I would say this drone industry has given us a great shove in the right direction because all of a sudden you realize that you can fly these little vehicles, and anybody can fly them and go anywhere with them. Now, of course, that's going to be controlled. All right, Paul, listen, I've got to jump in here. We'll uh, take a quick time out, come back, and continue to discuss the sky car. That's right, folks, flying cars. They're coming. Really, I mean it, this time, for sure. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Mahler International has developed the first and only feasible, personally affordable, personal vertical takeoff and landing vehicle the world has ever seen. Uh, and Paul Mahler, Mahler is uh, with us. We're talking about uh, the sky car. I'm looking at the, uh, the photograph uh, here, Paul, on Mahler.com, M-O-L-L-E-R, Mahler.com, the sky car. It's uh, four engines, correct? Four lifting yourselves, two engines in each one, kind of rotating. That way, if an engine fails, you still can fly the aircraft. All right, well, and you say you can fly it, but really, as you mentioned earlier, and this to me uh, left me sort of gobsmacked, no pilot license necessary because these are, uh, like the Google cars uh, we're anticipating, they're, they're driverless. You don't need to, once you drive it to the heliport, uh, I guess you push a button, a vertical takeoff, you punch in the GPS coordinates, and it does the rest, correct? Yes, that's the future. I mean, that's uh, we're not going directly there, of course. We're looking at vehicles that could be used for rescue and, and border patrol and a lot of other very useful immediate applications uh, as, as the market builds up and as we build up a record of safety. But yes, exactly. Within, within five years, you'll see the reality of that approach, and it's driven by many more things than what we're doing, certainly drones, give us a good example of what's possible. And, and um, these would be uh, the size of the sky car. You could drive this. It would take up a single lane. You could drive it at highway speed. Would they be no, just... I would, no, not highway speed, street no? speeds. This is, a, this is what I would call a streetable aircraft. Okay. There's no reason to go down a highway if you can fly. All right. So it would only be designed to take you to and from your garage, your single car garage, to the nearest heliport. 
right at some point perhaps even uh, locally within the city but i think that's going to depend on improved battery design right now that's the proper way to describe it so th- for touring it would be electrical battery on the street you're on battery and certainly as batteries get better you could use this perhaps around town uh, but you really aren't going to use it around town in the present form that it's designed in. It's going to be strictly to get you into the air and get you moving very quickly from point A to point B. And the engine, uh, the Rota Power engine, 204 horsepower, 65 pounds? Well, it varies depending on the model, but uh, the important thing is that we generate over 3 horsepower per pound, which is unheard of in an internal combustion engine. It's, that's more like what you might get out of a turbine engine. So. That was critical, and you need to do it at low cost. Turbines achieve high power to weight, but they cost so much that no one could ever afford the vehicle. And and what's the fuel here? We prefer ethanol. We have used methanol. These are alcohols, of course. Uh, and, of course, we've done a lot. We've used diesel, but not in the aircraft. We use diesel in our engine, and we've done some flying with gasoline. But given the choice, if it's available, we would use ethanol. It's our first choice. Now, um what about, I mean, you, you mentioned this, you know, ultimately this could be driverless uh, or pilot, you know, you don't need a pilot's license. And I'm thinking uh, back a couple of months ago, there was a story of someone who hacked into um, a jet, uh, the autopilot feature on a jet. Uh, and I'm not sure how far this individual got, whether they could, you know, it's been, it's been rumored that, you know, someone could hack in and, and land a plane, uh, for example, uh, there was a rumor that the Chinese um, intelligence agency hacked into a U.S. you know jet and landed it, force landed it in in um, in China and so forth. I don't know if there, you know these are apocryphal stories, but the the, the overall what I'm thinking about here is a, a potential security risk. Let's say we've got uh, you know several thousand of these sky cars. Um, could they not be commandeered through a computer? Uh, and all of a sudden, you've got a potential weapon. Well, it's hard for me to say that that's impossible, but I'm sure as time goes along, we're we're learning every day how to protect ourselves. This is a very important technology, how to protect ourselves from electronic interference. Um, so I won't say how you could protect yourself. I'm convinced, based upon what I've seen, that we will find means uh, a kind of redundant backup security systems that if if one system's taken over on board the aircraft another system comes into play that would be my solution based upon the way we've designed the aircraft in the first place all right how long have you been at this uh, uh paul how long have you been developing this <laughs> longer than i care to admit but I, I i started designing my first uh, helicopter when i was 15 and that's back in 1950 51 all right, and so what was the impetus for this, uh, for the for developing the sky car? Is it traffic congestion? Well, you're what giving me it? too much credit there. It really started out with a personal desire as a as a six year old to imitate the hummingbird. I, I grew up in a rural part of Canada, in British Columbia, and, and getting to school was a, a major task in the middle of winter. And so the idea of getting there, the way the hummingbird is able to fly, was was very attractive, and it started me on a path that that I've never left. Is there a prototype now? I mean, do you have, uh, are you using uh, a sky car? Yes. Oh, well, no, I don't use it because it's a, it's a, it's a you know, experimental vehicles at this time, and there's a lot of government control over what I do and what I, when I do it. 
but we, of course, have flown many different vehicles, and we've flown some of them many, many times. But now as we get closer to reality, the government becomes even more a part of what we're doing because we have to, if we want their approval, the FAA's approval, then we have to play their game. And that means being very cautious how we use the vehicle. But it's all part of the bureaucratic process as it moves forward. Have they been helpful, cooperative, or are they throwing every potential obstacle at you that they can? Well, they're like most organizations. There are there are people and groups within the organization that have been incredibly helpful, and there's other ones that really haven't been against us, but they don't necessarily get enthusiastic about new ideas. So we are working, of course, with everybody that we have to work with, but we we certainly have people that are very supportive of something different from what we're dealing with today. Uh, but again, there uh, there is a uh, an experimental uh, or a prototype that that is lying in a hangar somewhere, sitting in a hangar somewhere. Yes, in fact, I have some of the original prototypes sitting, you know, a few hundred feet away from me in, in, in sort of storage, some of the ones we flew very early on. But right now we have two models that, uh, that we... One that we're getting ready to fly this fall, it'll be a production version rather than a prototype. It'll be something that you could buy sometime next year. It's the what we call the, the Jetson-like vehicle called the New Era. If you remember the Jetsons, it looks very much like that. The New Era 200. Exactly. I'm looking at that now. That that looks nothing like the Sky Car. I mean, this looks like, I mean, this looks like a flying saucer. <laughs> it's wingless. It does, but it's, it's not, a wingless craft. It's not. It's not very fast. It's a practical recreational utility vehicle, uh, but it's fun. You can take off vertically. Uh, you can fly around in, in almost your own magic carpet. So, from the point of view of the attractiveness to a user, the only difference is you won't be able to go faster than. Certainly not above 100 miles an hour, whereas the sky car is designed for much higher speed. But but it's wingless, correct? It's it's winged in the sense you know when people throw a frisbee disc, right? It still flies. So yes, it's it's wingless in that sense, but it still creates lift, much like a frisbee. Now, the New Era 200. Uh, what's the price point on that? Well, we don't know for sure because we are viewing this as initially an international auction because we've had so much requests from around the world. So clearly it's going to go out there at any, almost any price initially. But we know that the vehicle is dependent pretty much on the cost of the engine. And so there'll be a time, and I can't tell you if that's five years from now or ten years from now, where you'll be able to buy the new era version for under 50000 and and the Skycar for under seventy five. But that's not going to happen tomorrow. Granted, uh, under 50000 uh, you can own your, I'm going to call, I don't care what anyone says, Paul, I'm going to call it a flying saucer. The New Era 200, <laughs> I mean, it looks like a flying saucer, uh, complete with the dome on top. Uh, and uh, it's, mind you, it's not flat on the bottom. Now, I don't see any landing gear. I don't see wheels on the New Era 200. How does yeah, that? No, it has wheels. It has a really substantial energy-absorbing undercarriage because you always worry about coming out a little harder than you like, and so you've got a lot of ways to keep the people on board safe. Yes, it does have steerable wheel in the nose and two other wheels, but we always maintain only three wheels because, believe it or not, it's classified as a motorcycle in most states in America if it has only three wheels. It's and that classified. makes life a lot easier in terms of the approval process when you're 
driving on the street. Ah. The rules of a motorcycle are much easier to deal with than no. the rules of an automobile. No kidding. Interesting. All right. So the New Era 200 will be a three-wheeled uh, craft and um, be classified as a motorcycle. And the price point, again, 50000 eventually, we hope. Eventually, right. All right. Uh, you know, this, uh, to me, is, is amazing. I'm, I'm at the risk of uh, sounding like an old, you know, dinosaur, an anti-green, never been a huge fan of public transit. Uh, we tend to pour a lot of money into public transit, not a lot of money into roads, despite the fact that about 80% of us continue to drive. <laughs> um, um, do you think that the the Skycar, the New Era 200, um, have has the potential to alleviate traffic to the point where we would no longer be necessarily so dependent or so you know hellbound on on pouring all of this money into public transit. Well, I think public transit is still going to grow. Some of the ideas like Elon Musk's Hyperloop and things like that are interesting possibilities. I think mass transportation uh, in the some of these modern conceptions. Is, is going to come at some point. At the same time, we're going to end up with uh, cars being used typically for shorter distances. The electric car is going to be around for a long time, and if you're going to use it for a shorter distance, it'll really start to dominate. But this fits this fits in between those two. This is the ultimate in personal mobility. You can take off wherever you generally want and go to the top of the mountain and have lunch. It's a, it's a freedom that people can only imagine today. But it's still a, 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 uh, 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 an opportunity to, to imitate that hummingbird, which is, is, a, is a driving force for, uh, would be a driving force for a lot of people. And would you be manufacturing these in Canada? Well, I, I think it'll, if it's successful, we will have partners uh, working in a lot of different areas, and Canada would certainly be one of those places. In fact, we think our aircraft is particularly suited for countries like Australia and Canada initially, where they have these you know, large distances between small populations where a vehicle like this would, would really change the uh, demographics they're getting around. What's the, what, would the, what would be the, uh, the ceiling on the New Era 200 or the Skycar in terms of altitude? Well, they're, they're totally different. Uh, the New Era is probably a vehicle that you wouldn't take usually above 500 feet because it's going fairly slow, relatively speaking. There would be no reason to go very high. Now, the Skycar, by by as an alternative, benefits from the higher you go, the faster you go uh, in terms of the same miles per gallon. So if you can go to 25,000 feet, which we consider the upper limit, somewhere between 18 and 25,000, depending on the local rules, then you can fly at 300 plus miles an hour, whereas at sea level, you wouldn't go over 200 miles an hour or you'd burn a lot more fuel. That's why jet airplanes fly very high. And what's the distance you could travel on the Skycar? I'm sorry, you didn't hear that? The distance. How far? Oh, uh, Depends on the fuel you're using. Uh, gasoline, 750 miles on the four-passenger Skycar, 400. Uh, on alcohol, uh, about 600 miles. And on the two-passenger, 200, it's, uh, it's about 25, 25 to 35% less. 
And what about the the infrastructure? Uh, I'm talking about the the heliports here. I mean, we'll, we'll take a break. The music is is uh, percolating up here, which is my cue to get out. So we'll uh, come back and discuss uh, that plus uh, investment opportunities and. Uh, you know, what is needed to take this to the next level. Paul Mahler is with us, the CEO of Mahler International. He's developed the first and only feasible, personally affordable, personal ve- uh, personal vertical takeoff and landing vehicle the world has ever seen, the Skycar, the Nurera 200. Flying cars, folks, they have arrived. The future has arrived. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Paul Mahler stays with us. The Mahler Skycar is the ultimate hybrid vehicle, an aircraft that takes off and lands like a helicopter. It's able to fly at high speed, yet also able to travel at low speed on the ground and narrow enough to fit on urban streets. It's a flying car, and uh, it has been built, it exists, uh, and all that needs uh, well, the next level, I guess, is is uh, federal approval from various uh, governments and uh, I guess an investor to start mass producing this same thing. Paul, where are where are you in terms of uh, investors and, and being able to tool up to start mass producing? Well, I don't think there's much doubt that we're going to be doing this as a joint venture. Uh, we're at the point right now of demonstrating the, the technology to establish the credibility that it needs to to find the right partner to move forward with us, and it, this is a while this is not that expensive to undertake because it's far less complicated than a typical light airplane. The only really moving parts in this vehicle are the engines, so it's a it's a much simpler vehicle. At the same time, the engines themselves are are uh, you know it's a fairly major task producing mass producing engines. So. We know that we're going to be working with other people to make this happen. Uh, do you imagine perhaps your partners being uh, automobile uh, companies like Ford, or uh, you know, would it be someone like an Elon Musk? I, I, or? I rather doubt that. The the automotive companies historically have not been very innovative. I can remember a time when General Motors said, "We will never build a hybrid car." And uh, it comes back to haunt them years later when they they had to do a lot of catch-up to catch up with Toyota, which are way out in front, and they're still catching up. So I don't think the auto industry is likely to do it as I know it. Um, But certain segments of the aviation industry might. But at the same time, I think it's probably like everything in the past of this nature. It usually ends up being its own industry. driven by some major organization like General Electric. I mean, I could imagine General Electric, for example, uh, forming a division at some point to take on something like this. Is there a military application? Have you caught the... I know you, you did some work with the U.S. Defense Department, uh, if, I re- if I'm remembering your bio correctly. Uh, is there a military application for, for this? Oh, yes. It's, 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 it's really almost the perfect aerial jeep. One of the problems we had in Iraq and Afghanistan is, is getting down on the ground and sending off these uh, IUD, IEDs. Uh, this is... Uh, this is something that they've been looking for for a long time. Is a, is a jeep that you know doesn't have to be on the ground, uh, except in very understood areas where they have a known security. So we see that as one possibility. Another very immediate possibility would be border patrol. Um, 
rather than to build walls. I think we can, and, and fences that no one's going to really be able to uh, keep anybody out with. Uh, just having some security system that, that goes out there and rescues people uh, that try to cross the border and get caught out in the middle of the desert in the southern United States and die in droves, this would be a, a good vehicle for that. All right, so instead of a wall, the sky car. Maybe if you rename it the Trump, he, uh, he'll write your ticket for you. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, how about, uh, I mean, the heliports that you would drive to to take off? And again, this is a vertical. Well, tell me about these heliports. Where would they be located? How many would you need? Well, they're going to expand as the city and the use of such a vehicle increases. Initially, they're a city like Davis, which is one I live in, is you know, could say is perhaps a hundred thousand with the student population. You might have in a city like this, say three three uh, places, and they're envisioning doing these at intersections uh, where you have this unused space in the middle of typical roundabouts and other things. So there's some planning uh, already in place where such vehicles would be utilizing existing space in a very convenient way. And also, since there's bound to be some noise with them initially, although we think we have a way of solving the noise problem entirely, um, having them in near traffic uh, as the takeoff point would, would benefit from, from that as well. All right, Paul, stay put. We'll take one final time out, come back. Some questions remain. The flying car, I love it. It's here, almost. Hold on to your hats. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. All right, Paul Mahler stays with us till the top of the hour. We are talking about flying cars, the Sky Car and the Nuera 200. Now, the um, these are single passenger. Well, interesting enough, we vary all the way from a single passenger to a nine passenger. We've never built a nine passenger. We've wind tunnel tested it, but I think really I should give you a little vision of what I think is going to happen here, based upon our own studies and those of the government. You probably, for the most part, aren't going to own the Sky Car, or you may own the New Era, but you're probably not going to own the Sky Car. What you're going to do is you're going to call up and ask for a vehicle anywhere from one to six passengers. If you're on a business trip, of course, it'd be a one passenger. If you're going here with your family, it'd be six. The vehicle will land at your, if it can, it'll land at the doorstep. If not, it'll land at a vertiport uh, nearby. It may come and pick you up uh, on the street and take you back to vertiport for takeoff. And it would deliver you, and then it would go on its way and continue to work. That way you can have a, a, a great utilization of the vehicle, and that will reduce the cost to the point where studies have shown that this will certainly not cost that much more than a uh, herb you know, a, a regular kind of rental vehicle. Sounds like an Uber sky car. Yes, it's, 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 I think it makes a lot of sense because you're still going to have your normal car for the most part. You might, in fact, still have two cars, but this would be the vehicle that you would use for so much of the things that you'd love to have that mobility, avoid the airport that we have today and all the misery associated with that, and the ultimate flexibility to go where you want when you want. And, and, and uh, so it fills in a, a role that's totally missing in today's uh, transportation world. So, uh, th- I mean, this could pose a serious threat to, uh, you know, the airlines that are running, you know, Toronto to Montreal, for example, or, you know, these small uh, commuter-type uh, right. airlines. We can handle 75% of the traffic today with the range that we have right now. In other words, 75% of the flights today are 
750 miles or less. So, yes, um, but again, they have a problem because that traffic is growing so rapidly that they got problems at airports and a lot of other things. So, in a sense, we would save their bacon, so to speak, by giving an alternative that won't impact the, the traveler nearly as dramatically as it's going to if you don't have an alternative like this. Would um, each of these, the Skycar, the New Era 200, would they be equipped with um, a parachutes? We have parachutes uh, scheduled in, in everything that we build. Uh, we really, truly, with our redundancy, we have multiple engines. Engines can fail. The vehicle continues to fly. Computers can fail and continue to fly. Multiple gas tanks. This is really built with every element of safety you can imagine, but just perhaps for the personal psychological comfort of the early buyers, we have parachutes in place. Um, they aren't, they take a little bit away from the payload, so hopefully one would ultimately not need them, but we're starting out with parachutes absolutely just to make people comfortable early on. And and what about, um, again, the I'm looking at the New Era 200, the Skycar, let's say the single-seater or whatever. The, what's the payload? I mean, could you take luggage aboard this? Yeah, a limited amount. Uh, vertical takeoff is, a, is a, a high demand, power demand, so you always have some limitations. Um, but, uh, you know, if you have uh, so much baggage, then you, then you rent a four-passenger a four and you use three passengers in it and the rest for baggage. So... There's options here because you can you can rent whatever you need uh, in my vision uh, as far as payload capability. All right, and hopefully more leg room than uh, traditional airlines. <laughs> yeah, we have lots of leg room in the present vehicles. I'm sold. I, <laughs> I am totally sold uh, on this. Um, so, I mean, w- w- what's next? I mean, are you are you now lining up uh, uh, meetings with investors? And what what is it? What's the next step yeah, for you? We're, we're talking to people from around the world. Uh, we have, uh, it's interesting, you know, we've, we've been a public company for a long time, and we have investors from all over the world. Any of your listeners, for example, can become stockholders by just going to our website and, and finding out the proper party to talk to, to to buy the stock. But we don't promote that particularly. Uh, that doesn't necessarily put money in our pocket. What we we are working with a number of companies that could become joint venture partners for us. That's what we really need, and they're both a number of uh, foreign and a number of domestic. We seem to get more interested in in our company from foreign companies, countries like China, uh, than we do from the United States. So actually, we've had a lot of interest from Canada as well. Tell me about the. Uh, the other vehicles I'm seeing on uh, the website Mahler.com, the Firefly and the Aerobot. Well, the Aerobot is a term for our unmanned vehicles, and as, it's, as you noted earlier, we've delivered um, into the black areas, as we call it, a government programs that we really can't talk about. We've delivered a number of vehicles. I think we were the, certainly the world's leader for a long period of time in terms of specialized vehicles for specialized applications, many of which I don't really know. Uh, what they're exactly used for. Um, and then we have the uh, Firefly, which is just a variation, a relatively minor variation of the New Era 200, but it's in a utilitary form, utilitarian form, where you can offload chemicals, uh, load baggage, uh, rescue people from the side of a, a building that's on fire, um, 
generally all around multi-purpose vehicle, and, and we are going to probably be concentrating on that more than the new era initially because uh, there's immediate applications and uh, immediate interest in having something like that available. And again, the, the Firefly it looks like a flying disc, except it doesn't have the dome over top like Correct. the new era. You get in and out of it very much easier, and uh, it's a really a, a very practical version of the uh, New Era 200. So, for example, if you had a fire on a skyscraper and you couldn't obviously put a ladder truck and reach people on the 50th floor, you could use the Firefly in a, in a rescue operation. Yes, you notice there's a walkway in directly from the front, and we'd have handrails on the side of that, and you'd come up there and you'd have a ramp that was a air cushion ramp, so to speak, that would go up against the building and someone would be able to walk directly on this. We could... We can bring down as many as three people, but more often than not, we'd bring down probably no more than two. Um, but it would be exciting uh, to provide this alternative that really isn't available today. And how far are you away from the, the Firefly, Firefly being you know, fully uh, operational, developed, and manufactured? Well, we've got the airframe for the Firefly already built, and so uh, we're just one thing at a time. We're, we're going to demonstrate the production new era Perhaps by the end of this year, certainly shortly shortly after the end of the year, the new era. Uh, I sorry, the new era before the end of this year, the Firefly, very early next year, and then the latter part of next year we'll have the uh, the uh, Skycar 200. The Skycar 400 is is a bit further away because of regulations. Now, the, the new era uh, 200. Now, forgive me if I've already asked you this, but has have that has that been test flown? It's that's been flown for now many years it's we've had over 200 test flights with it never had a problem never had an accident uh no one ever has been in danger with it because again with multiple computers and multiple engines there is really all kinds of options if something goes wrong uh, but to fly that presently you would need a pilot's license correct you you would do you'd need what's called a pilot certificate if the fa cooperates and their plan the plans are to get approval under our category that the FAA already has called light sports aviation. And if we get approved under that category, and we have every reason to believe it's possible at some point, then uh, you would not need a pilot license. You'd have a pilot certificate. Of course, when we get it completely automated, as you and I talked about earlier, uh, then you wouldn't even have to have a pilot certificate because you'd, you'd be a passenger, so to speak. Because because so much of flying, obviously, the, the skill in flying is about the landing and the, and, and the takeoff. Exactly. That's where everything is. That's where all the skill is. This may sound on the surface like a silly question, but uh, in, in all, you know, in earnestness, I mean, as, when you flew the New Era 200, I mean, were there any um, UFO reports uh, as a result? <laughs> it's interesting you ask that. It, Actually, I don't know that I got any with that vehicle because they were, it was well understood and people knew that we were doing this. But when I was flying earlier vehicles at a time when nobody uh, generally knew about it except for a few people because of some press clippings, we did get calls up from people blaming us for some of the sightings. But we haven't had any of that for a while. Have you flown in the new era 200? I've always been the test pilot so far. I ah. mean, after all these years of building, I would... I mean, I don't think my stockholders are particularly happy about the idea, uh, but after all, I've I've uh, put my life into this. I, 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 it wouldn't be fair that I don't have a chance to fly it. What's it like flying in that thing? What's it feel like? 
it's absolutely unbelievable because when you fly this vehicle, you you compare it, of course, initially to a helicopter in terms of your sensation. But in a helicopter, you, there's a lot of vibration, which this is completely free from vibration. And in a helicopter, you feel like you're being lifted up from above like a crane, which is okay. I mean, it's pretty exciting. But in this case here, the lift comes from below you, much more like the magic carpet. And so, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that is truly the sensation you have. It's an experience that's it's worth its weight in gold. You uh, you may go down as if I mean if all this comes to fruition, you may go down as one of the, the you know the great aeronautical pioneers. Well, that's never been my goal. Actually, I mean I've been driven only by my own personal desires. And uh, right now, for example, I'm very happy to let somebody come in and work with me and and uh, and bring this product to market. And I'm happy to go back and be the chief technical officer and let somebody else be the CEO because uh, I, I, I like what I do best is design and it's what I prefer to do if I give it a choice. Well, Paul, a real pleasure. I don't know if you re- – we, we spoke probably 10, 12 years ago and at that time um, – you know, things weren't as far along as they are now, but it really does seem like you are on the cusp, and I congratulate you uh, for your perseverance and your fortitude and your uh, innovativeness and uh, uh, ingenuity. So so thank you very much for spending some time with well, us. Well, thank you, too. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Again, the website is Mahler.com, M-O-L-L-E-R.com. You might mention one final thing. They Please just do. put Skycar, and they'll get 400,000 articles if they want to. If they want to bother to read it, is that all? Four hundred thousand? A little, <laughs> a little light reading. All right, Skycar, just Google it. Bye-bye. Thank you, Paul. All righty, the future has arrived. Well, get on up to strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to the Conspiracy Show. There's a radio page, of course. You found us, the Conspiracy Show. There's also a television page, and uh, just a reminder, season four. Coming down the pipe soon across Canada on Vision TV. Don't have a date yet, but we will. And as soon as we do, we'll get it out to you. Uh, And, of course, a live events page. And uh, it's all right there under one roof, strangeplanet.ca. In the meantime, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. On Zoomer Radio. Well, 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 thank you for inviting me into your home, your long haul truck, your cab, your RV, your camper, your diner, your cabin in the woods. And a special hello to those of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, out of Toronto, Canada, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Uh, a, a big howdy to those listening to the uh, podcasts through iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher Radio, TalkZone.com, uh, through the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both free downloads and both Trey Cool, I may add. Check them out. Uh, and finally, a hearty how-do to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, a growing list of affiliates. Uh, Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland Communications is here in studio, and um, uh, we are expecting to reach out to the United Kingdom, where Robbie Graham, we're hoping, is standing by on the line from 
Merry Old England, to talk about uh, UFOs and Hollywood. Uh, still waiting on an official date, air date uh, for season four of the TV show, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Brand new episodes uh, set to debut across Canada on Vision TV very soon. Uh, the um, I believe it's seasons one and two now available for rent or uh, purchase in HD on Amazon.com. So many ways to watch, so many ways to listen. Uh, don't forget to get on up to the uh, website, strangeplanet.ca, and check out the live events page. As in the days of Noah, happening Wednesday, November the 4th, at the University of Toronto, L.A. Marzuli and Carl Gallops, live on stage with yours truly. This is an evening event, 7 to 10 p.m., at the Oise Auditorium. U of T, St. George campus, as in the days of Noah, and we'll be talking about the return of the Nephilim, the alien abduction phenomenon, and the trumpet days of Revelation. Again, tickets going fast. Don't miss out on this exclusive event. L.A. Marzulli, author of the Nephilim Trilogy, and Carl Gallup's author of Final Warning, Wednesday, November 4th, U of T. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the live event page for details and to order tickets. Hope to see you there. All right. Victor Vigiani, welcome back, my friend. How are you? I'm just fine. It seems like you're on a good flight path this evening. (laughs) Well, yes, but uh, no beverage card. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Nonetheless, um, it's been a little while since uh, you and I have have been in the studio together. How have you been? Just fine, thank you. Just fine. Just up to a number of different things uh, here and there, coming and going, and trying to keep the middle between both ends. Uh, We are, uh, as I mentioned, awaiting the arrival of um, uh, Robbie Graham. Uh, who is the author of Silver Screen Saucers, sorting fact from fantasy in Hollywood's UFO movies. Uh, Now, we've had him on before, and Mm -hmm. uh, you were mentioning that this book started out as a a university thesis for him. Apparently, yes. Um, He and um, Matthew Alford, uh, his his, um, uh, compatriot, uh, we're doing research on Hollywood and UFOs and different things like that. And I believe that Robbie was in the middle of a dissertation or presenting one. And then I think it, uh, if I have my facts right, it consumed him and he just went in the, in the direction of a book rather than in a thesis. And I'm not sure if he's actually presented a thesis or he just focused all on the book or not. We can find that out a little bit later. But I think that's the direction that it took. All right. I'm, I, I'm told we've reached him and um, he's just going to call back on a better line. But okay. while we're waiting for Robbie to join mm-hmm. us, I want this is our first opportunity to talk about. Uh, this is a, a potentially monumental story. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about NASA's Kepler, Kepler telescope uh, and uh, apparently has spotted this potentially an alien megastructure some 1,500 light years uh, from us. They noticed uh, this star uh, behaving in a very erratic fashion uh, without going into you know too many of the technical details. The last I've heard is NASA is saying there is a 50-50 chance uh, this star uh, or this, this, um, the, the light from this star is acting this way because, again, there is this man-made, if I can use that term, or alien megastructure that is passing in front of it. What do you make of this story? 
Well, I've, I've been following it uh, from a little bit of a distance because as soon as stuff like this comes out, I'm automatically skeptical because uh, NASA has a way of releasing information and skewing, skewing it in its own way. And uh, from that perspective, I, I don't know exactly what to make of it. But in the reading that I've done, uh, the one thing that has impressed me is the word artificial, that whatever's uh, emanating from this particular ring or, or, or level, whatever it happens to be, a mass of mature light, it appears to be in some way, shape, or form artificial. And uh, NASA has never, ever, ever um, reported anything in space. And this is the big part of the story, Richard. NASA has never, ever reported something that's other than them putting it up in space themselves, artificial in space uh, throughout the cosmos. And I think this is the biggest um, angle of the story. What it might be, who knows? But the fact that NASA is promulgating or putting forward the idea that this might be an artificial entity is massive. Because if it is artificial, we can only wonder what the next question is going to be. Well, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but did they not say it's 50-50? Well, NASA, like I said, NASA has a propensity of putting this information out and skewing it in its own way. Right. Now, when they say 50-50, it can go either way. Now, I, I, would, I would imagine at some point they're going to say, no, it, we were wrong. It was just some sort of light anomaly and, or Kepler picked up different wavelengths in this, within the spectrum. And it was, in fact, uh, you know, a, a cosmic entity that's just a natural part of the, of the cosmos. I'm fully expecting it to turn around that way. But for them to even hint at the fact that it could be artificial right. is, is, is something. It, it's, it's, I think it's a landmark. It's a bookmark in this whole idea of, of uh, you know, who is out there and who might create these kind of things and in a similar fashion to the things that, that supposedly to the structures that are on Mars or the structures that are on, on the, the far side of the moon. So they've never really ad admitted that because they airbrush that stuff out anyways. They have no way of airbrushing this stuff out yet. All they can do is make uh, statements about it. All right. Well, I, I'm I'm amazed that you know maybe I shouldn't be. Let me back up. I'm not that surprised. But a story of this magnitude, you would think you know front page New York Times. This could be potentially the greatest story of all time. I mean, someone once compared it to you know like. Columbus discovering America. Nay, it's much bigger than that. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> well, if we remember the, the, the monolith in, to, in, the, in the movie in the, uh, 2001, remember right. the monolith on... That's the, it's the same kind of thing with the, that, that kind of artificial structure on the moon. It's the same sort of paradigm shift that just may occur if NASA is correct and they're 50% saying it might be artificial. But it's, it's a, it's a crapshoot as far as I'm concerned. All right. Well, maybe at some point uh, sure. during the next 40 minutes we'll get Robbie Graham to weigh in on that. But he has joined us from the UK. And Robbie is, as I mentioned, the author of Silver Screen Saucers, Sorting Fact from Fantasy in Hollywood's UFO Movies. He's been interviewed on uh, this topic for BBC Radio, Coast to Coast. Uh, we've talked about uh, on, on this program. He's been interviewed at Vanity Fair. Among others, his articles have appeared in a variety of publications, including The Guardian, New Statesman, Film Facts, Fortean Times, and the peer-reviewed Journal of North American Studies, 49th parallel. He holds a first-class honors degree in film, television, and radio studies from Staffordshire University and a master's degree with distinction in cinema studies from the University of Bristol. Robbie Graham, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello. Hey, Richard. Hey, Victor. How's it going? Good to be with you. Great to have you. Thank you. Uh, this has been, um, this book, uh, in the works for some time. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the genesis. It started out as a thesis, correct? 
That's right. I mean, um, my writings on this initially started in around um, 2006, 2007, this interplay between UFOs and Hollywood. Um, I started writing some articles for various magazines, but then I started to focus on it in a serious way in 2009 when it was a doctoral thesis at the University of Bristol. And it morphed slowly into something more populist. Um, But it took so long because I didn't want this to be just another throwaway book. I wanted it to have lasting value for, you know, any serious researcher of this subject. Um, But mainly, you know, there's just so much material that one has to understand before putting pen to paper, so to speak. Uh, The book documents and analyzes almost seven decades worth UFO movies, uh, and also almost seven decades worth of UFOs and ufology. So it's, it's really a cultural and political history of the interplay between UFOs and Hollywood, and it required a tremendous amount of research. Um, a lot of this research was uh, primary, original interviews with uh, Hollywood writers, directors, producers, and even UFO experiences as well. So yes, it's a very big project, and um, I hope that the end product has, has been worth it. Is there a a trend? I mean, I don't know where you you begin uh, in terms of tracking Hollywood's depiction of UFOs. You know, we can go back to the 1950s and some of the schlocky films, Abbott and Costello go to Mars and so forth. I remember seeing that. Uh, But, I mean, is is there a a discernible trend uh, over the seven decades uh, in terms of the the the, um, the direction, the trajectory of the message that is being is it cohesive or is it all over the place? In terms of the message that Hollywood is sending us about the UFO ET issue. Well, b- before getting into that, I mean, I think the nature of the question you're posing there is basically this this idea of, of uh, UFO movies following a natural cultural path or a political conspiratorial one, um, this idea of a message behind them, whether the message itself is, is something that's naturally evolved or has been, uh, or has been seeded and, and, uh, and encouraged. And ultimately, the focus of what, of what I've done is both cultural and political. It addresses the political dimension of Hollywood's engagement with UFOs, how the government and military have exploited cinema to manage and shape popular perceptions and expectations of UFOs and alien visitation. But it also looks at what is, by and large, a natural cultural process through which cinema is fed off and popularized uh, ufological ideas and debates. It takes otherwise fringe ideas and incorporates them into the narratives. And in the process, it thrusts them you know, to the forefront of popular culture. So things like Men in Black, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, of the Fourth Kind, Area 51. Hollywood didn't create these terms. They were all part of the common language of ufology decades before Hollywood lifted them. Uh, you know, my position is that UFOs, unidentified flying objects, are real, which is to say that they exist independently of cinema and of pop culture more broadly. You know, UFOs have been investigated by governments around the world for almost seven decades, and what the phenomenon represents is, of course, open for debate, and various theories have been propounded from secret military aircraft to natural phenomena, otherworldly intelligences, and even you know, untapped human potential. The point is that in a world without movies, people would continue to report UFOs. People were reporting UFOs and even flying saucers 
long before Hollywood got in on the act. Robbie, let me so just jump in here. Apologies, we've got to take a time out. We'll come back and, uh, con- and continue to discuss Hollywood's uh, presentation of the UFO or depiction of the UFO ET issue. Victor Vigiani from Zeland Communications in studio. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Robbie Graham is with us. The, is with us, the author of Silver Screen Saucers: Sorting Fact from Fantasy in Hollywood's UFO Movies. And uh, Victor Vigiani is with us, executive director of Zeland Communications. Robbie, before the break, we sort of interrupted and you were explaining. Uh, I had asked you about the um, whether there's a sort of a trend uh, coming out of Hollywood in terms of the depiction that you could sort of plot over the seven decades. And you were sort of in the midst of explaining that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, overwhelmingly, Hollywood's depictions of the UFO phenomenon have been negative. Um, you've had uh, an overarching narrative of alien invasion from 1951, really, 1950-51, uh, through to present day. Now, within those sort of seven decades, approximately, you've had a smattering of, um, of, of movies in which extraterrestrials visit us with with benevolent intent. Um, but overwhelmingly, as I say, we've, we've experienced invasion at the cinema. And, you know, some people suggest with, within the UFO community, for example, that this is part of a strategy to demonize and vilify potential alien life um, and that this is a military strategy. Um, now, certainly there may be merit to that. You know, if there are, if there are elements within officialism who have uh, an, an understanding and awareness of uh, intelligences behind the UFO phenomenon, uh, regardless of their true intent, the, the beings that is, then it would certainly be uh, natural for the military-industrial complex to want to vilify uh, any potential uh, interstellar neighbours we might have, because from a military mindset, anything that's different is essentially a, a potential threat, um, and certainly that would extend to, to the idea of advanced extraterrestrial intelligences. Um, but the more mundane explanation, of course, is that uh, you know uh, it's movies about extraterrestrial life uh, where you've got, you know, friendly conversations between enlightened space beings and and, uh, peaceful humans are arguably um, harder to write um, in a a kind of a a profound way than than a a movie about, you know, a mothership blowing up New York. Sure, drama is about conflict. We need, you know, conflict is is what sells movie tickets. Well, it is, and it always has been. You know, it's about spectacle as well. Cinema is a spectacular medium, and uh, you know, studios are always looking for something that's that's, uh, that's going to be literally explosive at the box office. And if you've got uh, spectacular scenes of motherships over cities, and if you've got you know fantastic special effects depicting exotic-looking extraterrestrials, you know, wiping out humanity, uh, then then that's to them. Uh, more appealing and and uh, and equates to to more books at the box office, whereas something that's uh, a profound uh, you know um, uh, philosophical exploration of the nature of, of humanity and the nature of life in the universe uh, is is harder to write. I mean, it, it simply is, um, and and also again, it, it lacks conflict um, or it lacks obvious conflict. And so it's always been the inclination of Hollywood studios um, to back projects where you've got, uh, you know, um, demonic extraterrestrials. And, and that, certainly that's been the trend, as I say, since the 1950s. Um, so, so, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, 
the, the most obvious explanation is uh, is the, the bottom line, which is which is uh, the box office. All right, let's work uh, Victor Vigiani in here from Zealand. How you doing, Robbie? Hi there. Good to talk How's to you. Going? Not too bad at all. Uh, listen, I, I want to congratulate you on on this book because um, I, I've been a big fan of for many many years uh, Terry Hansen, who wrote Missing Times way back. I think the second mm-hmm. edition was published, and you know, you're familiar with in uh, 2012. And I think his, yeah, um, you know, his, the Missing Times news media complicity in the UFO cover up was probably the seminal work in looking at how media really uh, approaches the whole UFO issue, the whole the idea, both culturally and politically. And I think yours, uh, your your book sets the next, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the next bookmark in, in this this kind of work. Um, is, oh, thank you. Yeah, um, I'd like to get your 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 take on how the idea of film as media has sort of um, really it, it goes beyond what I think Terry did in, in certain ways in, in implanting a message in, in the in the human consciousness about the issue of UFOs and, and the extraterrestrial presence. It's really a um, you've done a great job in, in, in outlining how uh, media or film more so has really implanted a message in, in the human uh, psyche. Um, could you talk about that for a moment? Well, yeah, I mean, you have to look at the power of cinema itself as a medium. It, cinema has this essential mystical ability to detach us, essentially, from our, our physical environment and transport us to another more vivid realm of perception. It's you know a realm where everything's both illusory and yet strangely real. You know, in film studies, anything that exists within the world of the film is known as digesis. So the cinema screen separates there the character's fictional world from our so-called real world but actually the diegesis seeps through the screen and into our world and it, it, it comes into our subconscious and it becomes part of our reality you know, and, and key to cinema's power is that movies in their uh, you know slick neatly packaged self-contained way do actually narrativize and contextualize the events and debates and, and processes that constitute our non-narrative world and that's it's you know, we live in a very frustrating non-narrative world, but movies usually make sense of this. You know, life rarely makes sense, but movies usually do. And we do take comfort in that, but therein lies the problem because movies, no matter how realistic they are in the events that they are depicting, are not real life. They are, you know, reflections of our reality. They're snapshots of it. And they're skewed and distorted through the ideological framework of, of the people who have made them. And... The, the the problem with movies is that they masquerade as the, the final word on any given topic. So no matter what the subject, and regardless of how much that subject has already been written about and debated, once it's committed to film, you know, once it's received the, the Hollywood treatment, it's it's embedded uh, firmly into the popular consciousness, and it's, it's imprinted on our psyche. So, uh, you know, I've used this example before, but, you know, for example, if I say the word Titanic, what do you think of? Do you think of the event? Or do, you, or do you think of the, of the James Cameron movie? If I say, you know, if I say to a certain generation, to a newer generation, D-Day landings, I challenge you not to have images of Spielberg's movie, Saving Private Ryan, conjured in your in your mind almost immediately. It's like the old Dennis and, Miller uh, joke about JFK. Where were you when JFK was shot? And, and most people think you mean the right. Oliver Stone movie. Right. <laughs> and uh, so, so this is the thing: is, is that is that cinema does have this power. Because it makes sense of it. it, it literally visualizes and narrativizes and contextualizes um, historical events and debates and processes, um, and 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 it 
it imprints itself on us, and, and so the, the cinematic depiction becomes inseparable from the historical reality that underlies it. And this is especially problematic when it comes to subjects like UFOs, which are not an, acknowledged by consensus reality. So the UFO phenomenon is actually rejected wholesale by consensus reality, by officialdom. And therefore, our only understanding of the phenomenon comes if you actually take the time to go out and read specialist books on the subject, for example, or listen to you know listen to radio shows such as this, and, and you have to go out and do specialist research. Most, the vast majority of people do not do this, and so therefore the vast majority of people are getting their knowledge, so to speak, of UFOs through entertainment media, through cinema specifically. And what cinema does, as I say, is it blurs the line between fact and fantasy. Well, talking Hollywood, about. Uh... You know, blurring the lines, uh, Disney, the, the corporate entity known as Disney, uh, you go to great lengths in the book to talk about Walt Disney and, and Ward Kimball and uh, one of the animators and, and the cat and mouse game that Disney played with the United States Air Force in trying to get footage and the kinds of things that the Air Force allowed Disney to get and then um, retreated from that position. So this whole cat and mouse game and this corporate entity called Disney, uh, it, you know, who's in charge of implanting a lot of children and even adults today with with different kinds of messages. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about the role that Disney has played in, in really kind of commandeering reality in certain ways? Well, Disney um, and UFOs go back to uh, the, the early 1950s. And the CIA Robertson panel, of course, famously recommended or highlighted Disney as a ideal conduit for its um, UFO perception management efforts. So in 1953, when the Robertson panel made its, its recommendations to debunk and demystify UFOs and to otherwise manage popular perceptions of this phenomenon, they, they did specifically um, single out Disney as being, as being you know, key to this. Now, uh, you can look at, so for example, in, in, in the mid-1950s, uh, this is according to the testimony of uh, Disney animator Ward Kimball, who is now uh, deceased, but who was one of uh, Disney's famous nine old men, one of these great, um, hugely respected early animators with the studio. Um, Kimball, in 1979, stated publicly that in the mid-50s, uh, Disney had been approached by the Air Force to uh, uh, to participate in the making of a documentary that would help acclimate the public to the idea of alien life and visitation. <clears throat> and as part of this documentary, the Air Force were to supply Disney with real UFO footage. And so the animators actually got to work on the documentary. They spent several weeks on it. Eventually, the Air Force liaison for the project told Kimball uh, and others at Disney that, unfortunately, the footage was going to be retracted and uh, and ultimately the, the cooperation of the Air Force was not granted. Uh, and so Disney went on and made a number of animated uh, shorts about uh, life in space and about uh, space exploration, uh, Man on the Moon, on Mars, etc. Celebrated animated documentaries, but not... Um, not this 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 uh, this revelatory doc documentary that was planned. Um, so that that began a trend in the 1950s where Air Force personnel offered footage to filmmakers for the purpose of acclamation, and then withdrew it at the last minute, sending the production into you know down the tubes essentially. The same happened in, in uh, the early 1970s with the Robert Emmenegger documentary called UFOs Past, Present and Future where allegedly UFO landing footage was offered um, where you actually had uh, supposedly a, uh, a, a flying saucer land at Holloman Air Force Base and extraterrestrials exit the craft and uh, depart the scene with delegates of the US government. 
this was offered to Emenegger and his, his crew and then ultimately withdrawn. Uh, and the Watergate scandal was cited as the reason for its withdrawal because uh, it would have been too... Uh, uh, too uh, too much of a shock for the public to, to take. Uh, you know, Nixon and aliens was just too much in the, at the same time time, time period. So, uh, and then you had you had more footage offered to Linda Morton Howe, for example, during the production of one of her documentaries in the early 1980s. Uh, you had Air Force personnel, excuse me, strike that naval intelligence personnel claiming to be naval intelligence personnel approach um, Bryce Zabel and his production partner uh, Brent Friedman in the mid-1990s for the production of Dark Skies. Um, and there are other examples in between. So you've had all of these examples where uh, officialdom has approached filmmakers, offered inside knowledge or footage, and then withdrawn it. Um, or, well, in the case of the Zabel, uh, uh, Dark Skies and Bryce Zabel, they didn't withdraw it, actually. Um, Bryce Zabel and his production partner actually backed away because they were so freaked out by the whole thing. But, um, but there does seem to be a, a trend, and it's, uh, it seems to be a, disin- uh, a disinformation strategy. Um, was there any real footage to offer? I'm sure there was real footage. Was there actual alien landing footage? Mm, debatable. <laughs> Certainly no proof of it. Um, the filmmakers themselves never saw the footage, but were only told of its existence. Um, so, so it's very hard to make sense of of, uh, of these efforts. Um, I do attempt to uh, in the book, and I do paint a picture of a disin- uh, disinformative strategy dating back at least to the early 1980s. Uh, and the goal, I think, has been to convince the UFO community and uh, in turn, the, the public at large, that the U.S. government or elements within it, within it do have a very clear understanding of the UFO phenomenon, but but more significantly, that they actually have working relationships and treaties with the intelligences behind the phenomenon. All right, listen, Robbie. Understanding. I've, pardon me, I've got to jump in once again. Technologies involved. All right, Robbie, we'll, uh, we'll take a time out. We'll get you to finish off that point uh, before I so rudely interrupted you, and we'll uh, come back on the other side. Robbie Graham, Silver Screen Saucers, and Victor Vigiani in studio. Zeland Communications, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Robbie Graham is with us, the author of Silver Screen Saucers, sorting fact from fantasy in Hollywood's UFO movies, and Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland Communications. Uh, have... Um, let's say, for example, I don't know, the Office of Naval Intelligence or someone in the Pentagon, have they been even more overt about getting involved in Hollywood productions? Have they, for example, funded major studios or set up their own wing uh, or production company? Uh, There are examples uh, of the CIA, for example, setting up production companies um, in the past, and these have been well documented in the case of Argo, for example, um, and getting involved in in that capacity. Um, But when it comes to funding on on the whole, uh, you know, it's it's really a myth and a misunderstanding that that CIA needs to fund Hollywood. Hollywood is a multi-billion dollar industry. It doesn't need to to, to ask CIA for money. Um, so that's not how the CIA exerts its influence. It exerts its influence, um, uh, and for example, so the, CIA, so the agencies that have influence in Hollywood are the CIA, the Department of Defense, and really every branch of, of the military, um, and NASA as well. But the, the Department of Defense is the most influential overtly, and it has this open relationship with Hollywood that goes back several decades, whereby the DOD 
offers extensive um, hardware, personnel and on-set advice in exchange for the right to edit scripts. So the DOD has considerable control over script content on the movies it, it, it advises on. Um, and of course that, has, that can shape the message of a film or, or even a franchise as it has done, for example, with Transformers, with the Transformers movies. Those are really Department of Defense products, as is, for example, Battleship, the Alien Invasion Battleship, as is Battle Los Angeles and a number of others. Um, the CIA is, is trickier. It exerts its influence much more subtly and, on the whole, covertly. Um, CIA was, in, was, was uh, in, involved in Hollywood dating back to the early 1950s and got involved in a big way in 1953 onwards, um, which, not coincidentally, is the same year of the CIA Robertson panel uh, formed and made its recommendations as well. And... Uh, so it was early early 1950s that the CIA really truly recognised the huge potential of, of cinema to shape public acceptance, not only of UFOs but of all sorts of hot button national security issues and and of really mundane issues as well. Like um, you know the CIA in the early early 50s and mid 50s and through to the 60s was covertly tampering with scripts to uh, change messages relating to colonial history, for example, and race relations and and you know relative you know these are not not insignificant, of course, but you know, compared to the idea of of, of, of an extraterrestrial threat, for example, then then uh, you know it give, it puts it into context. You know, if if indeed uh, there was knowledge during this time period of a, of, a, of a non-human element to the UFO phenomenon, and in fact the CIA's own files suggest that 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 was something that was being considered, uh, then certainly the CIA would have gone out of its way to uh, tamper with the content of UFO theme scripts. Of course, the science fiction genre was dominated by UFO movies at the time. So it's fair to say that, that a number of UFO movies almost certainly would have come in, uh, into the sights of, of, uh, of the CIA. So, and there are a number of examples you can point to during this time period as well that do bear the fingerprints of the CIA. Um, so the CIA officially now liaises with Hollywood in an open capacity, and this goes back to the mid-1990s with the CIA uh, media liaison office. Um, and it, 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 it operates in much the same way as the Department of Defense does, except it has less to offer in terms of hardware. So it really offers script advice and, and access to its Langley headquarters, for example, to increase authenticity of the movie. But the CIA involvement continues to go much, much deeper than that. And uh, there's evidence to suggest that the CIA has assets that every you know, um, choke point in the industry, from the scriptwriters, uh, uh, you know, producers, directors, studio heads, uh, every point of, of considerable influence has, has been, um, uh, you know, infiltrated by by the agency. And this and this is, you know, uh, you mentioned Victor about the uh, the idea of uh, news media infiltration, and this is so thoroughly documented by um, by Terry Hansen in, in regard to UFOs in his book. Uh, but this is also previously documented by Carl Bernstein, for example. Um, and you know, is it, even in the mid 1970s, it was the CIA's. Um, reaches into the news media were exposed, uh, and and it, it, you know there the was, the was, the was over 400 um, news outlets and uh, 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 and uh, papers, magazines, TV networks that were infiltrated by the CIA. It had 400 journalists rather um, working in a uh, in a in a uh, kind of a voluntary or paid capacity for the agency. So they had a, a complete grip. Of, of news media um, as early as the mid 1970s, and it obviously it goes goes without saying that this has continued to this day. Although 
the uh, the the proof of that is is slimmer because the CIA has this unwritten policy of nothing on paper. Um, but if you want to control how anyone thinks about anything, then you simply have to control the media. It goes without saying. So, so you know, the CIA, the DOD, any element of officialdom really recognizes the significance of, 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 of these media. But entertainment media is also extremely important, arguably more important than, than, uh, than news media, because it's seen as soft, it's seen as entertainment, it's seen as fluff. And therefore, the messages that you impart are, are subtler and they are more readily accepted. People view news media with a certain amount of suspicion, although we generally accept whatever we hear. Um, most people, you know, there are a, a, a growing number of people who view with suspicion what they what they read and and uh, and, and uh, hear and see through through news media. Whereas entertainment media is still seen as escapism, and uh, and that's why it's of course so so uh, so important to to really understand how how entertainment media has been um, hijacked really by by uh, CIA, by Department of Defense, by uh, NASA by, you know, I mean, even the, uh, the, the new movie The Martian is essentially a recruitment ad for NASA. All right, uh, Robbie, we have to take yet another time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss Hollywood's UFO movies. Robbie Graham, Silver Screen Saucers, Victor Vigiani in Studio Zeland Communications. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. All right, last segment with Robbie Graham, Silver Screen Saucer, sorting fact from fantasy in Hollywood's UFO movies. Victor Vigiani, take it away. Actually, I want to uh, talk about some of the actual movies and the influence that some of these larger agencies have had. And specifically, you know, you talk about E.T., the movie, and Men in Black and Falling Skies and War of the Worlds. But I don't think there's any other movie that I can recollect uh, that's more powerful in not only just its message, but in the way uh, a larger agency influenced uh, David Spielberg or Steven Spielberg to um, to come up with uh, something suitable. And I understand that uh, Spielberg was issued issued uh, a litany of, of, uh, of reasons why he should not make Close Encounters uh, of the Third Kind. Um, what was that all about? <clears throat> yeah, Spielberg, of course, was a, a obsessed with UFOs from an early age, and, and Close Encounters was the, was the end product, I guess, of, uh, or the culmination of his childhood and teenage obsession with UFOs. <clears throat> and this was a passion project for him, and it was heavily logical. It was based on real case reports and um, benefited from the advice on set of um, J.L. and Hynek. And even the, the name of the film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, of course, is based on, uh, is taken from Hynek's uh, classification system for UFOs. So this was an explicitly ufological movie. Um, it was science speculation, as Spielberg said, rather than science fiction. And when Spielberg approached the Air Force and NASA in around 1976 for their cooperation on his 1977 movie, both of them declined uh, their, their assistance. And the Air Force declined on the grounds that it had in the past, which is that, um, uh, you know, they will not lend support to UFO-themed movies because to do so would, would contravene their policy on UFOs and their policy is that UFOs do not exist and we will not support any, any project which, which claims that they do or encourages the belief that they do. And uh, so, I should, so although today we have heavy involvement in UFO-themed productions from, from the DOD, as I've just mentioned in terms of battleship, transformers, etc., uh, up to a point in the 1970s and early 1980s, it was the policy of the Air Force uh, generally speaking, not to involve themselves in these productions and to decline 
their, their assistance. And that extended to Spielberg's movie in 1977. And then when Spielberg approached NASA um, requesting their assistance, they actually went so far, according to Spielberg, to send him a 20-page letter specifically requesting that he not make the movie at all. And that they were worried about the influence of the movie on popular perceptions of the phenomenon, that uh, his movie would incite mass hysteria and UFOs would be to the public what sharks were after Jaws. Uh, you know, because Spiel, Spielberg's blockbusting Jaws was the, was the most successful film of all time at that point. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so they were worried that this, this film would have the same effect with UFOs. They didn't want their their lines flooded again with UFO reports, and they were convinced that, that this movie would do that. So they said, you know, please don't make the movie. Um, so Spielberg cited that letter and their response as, as proof to him that indeed the Air Force really did take this subject seriously. Let's, um, um, in the time that remains, Robbie, let's talk about disclosure, if we could. In, in your thoughts, uh, the, the current state of the disclosure movement efforts by various individuals, uh, Stephen Bassett and others, uh, and their initiatives to, to pressure governments, specifically the United States government's government, uh, to to come clean or to state, you know, what they know about UFOs and ETs. Are you at all frustrated, as you know, many of us are, about the the glacial <laughs> um, the glacial movement? Uh, in, in terms of disclosure? Yeah, well, you know, I've spoken about this publicly, and, I, I, you know, the problem really with the disclosure mindset is that it declares an end to the UFO enigma. It says, in essence, we know what they are, which is extraterrestrial spacecraft, nothing more exotic, nothing more, more, uh, nothing stranger than that. I mean, that's strange enough, but, but to be honest, I, I'm of the opinion that the, the phenomenon... Uh, is more multifaceted than mere extraterrestrial visitation, although extraterrestrials may well be involved. Um, but you know, all the while, the movement, the disclosure movement, you know, it, it looks to officialdom as a sort of unfair parent figure, and it tugs very incessantly at the leg of power. But you know, officialdom actually isn't listening, as far as I can tell. And more importantly, it doesn't really have all the answers. Um, now, it does seem likely that elements within official power structures do have more pieces of the UFO puzzle uh, at their fingertips than the rest of us do, but it's extremely improbable that they've succeeded in solving the puzzle. Um, and despite appearances, you know, and the power of their egos, uh, the secret keepers, whoever they are, are essentially in a universe that's 13 billion years old, some, you know, uh, they're, they're monkeys like the rest of us. And I would say that they're flailing around for answers. Um, just as, as, as many other people are. And, you know, they struggle to understand the underlying nature of UFO phenomena, much less to explain it. But just because you recognize that there's an extraterrestrial or otherworldly um, component to this, and just because you may even have had hands-on hands -on technologies, I mean, and there's no evidence, there's really no evidence that, that there has been, um, no, no, no smoking gun. Um, there's a lot of suggestion and, and, uh, and rumor and testimony, but there's no smoking gun that that's the case. Um, but even if that is the case, um, it, it doesn't mean that you have a full grasp of what you're dealing with. And so, you know, what can our elite parents figures possibly divulge to us without appearing ignorant and confused and losing a huge weight of their to say that it's better for them to stay silent while subtly encouraging a belief that they actually do have all the answers and that they're all knowing. And what this does is it creates this um, this desire 
particularly within the conspiracy communities, to actually look to officialdom as 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 uh, as a figure of of, um, of salvation and enlightenment. You know, and so I would say that should the government or any element within officialdom ever come clean, so to speak, on UFOs. You know, we should all be immediately and extremely suspicious because UFO truth, by way of any official power structure, will not be truth at all. It can't be. It will be whatever truth least vilifies and incriminates uh, the people who have kept the secrets. The, the now, whole, yeah, the whole dilemma, though, I guess, what you're describing uh, uh, is really the the dilemma that we distrust our political leaders, and then they come out and say something about the UFO ET reality. Why should we believe them? Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly. You know, this is it. This is the the ultimate irony of the disclosure movement. Is that you know by imagining all the UFO, uh, you know all, all of the answers to the UFO mystery to be out of public reach, and deep in the bowels of the national security state it actually places power into the hands of officialdom whilst disempowering the individual. And, you know, it, it's basically, it, it's, it's a very strange um, dichotomy now where, where, we, where people within the UFO conspiracy community, for example, they deeply distrust officialdom while simultaneously and constantly looking to officialdom for the truth. Now, that's, that's, that's a fundamental flaw here. Something's, got, something's not right with that. If you deeply distrust the people who are keeping secrets, why would you suddenly accept everything they have to say yeah. on so-called Disclosure Day? Yeah. It's not going to be, assuming such a day ever comes, it will not be the truth. It will be their truth. Their it truth, will be whatever yeah, truth yeah. these vilifies and incriminates. If, yeah. if Stephen Bassett was here right now, and I, I don't want to pretend to speak for him, but what he would say, in, in uh, not necessarily contra- trying to contradict you, but... Uh, what he would say is that we're really not looking for the kind of information that most people think that we might be looking for. All they're asking, I understand this yeah, position. It, yeah, in, in they want government to acknowledge it. That's all. A simple yeah. acknowledgement. Yeah. But they, this is this is with respect to Steve. Uh, you know, it's fantasy because you cannot have a simple acknowledgement and leave it at that. You can't come out and go, "Hey guys, um, yeah, just uh, before you carry on with stuff, just I just wanted to quickly say, uh, yeah, there's there's non-human advanced intelligences they've been interacting with us maybe for thousands of years certainly since 1947 um we've you know know, we've been studying them secretly everything we know about the universe is is wrong um okay carry on go go ahead carry on now with 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 life um no you can't just have an acknowledgement because then the thousands and thousands of profound questions follow and answers will be demanded now it's impossible for them to demand those answers, to, to provide those answers, um, because they don't have them, right? They may have some of those answers, and even if they had those answers, some of the answers, why would they? Why would they give them? And why would they give them truthfully? There's simply no way of verifying anything that any of these people say. And it's just case that, you know they are fundamentally and inherently and historically deceptive. Okay, the, the CIA is, is a deceptive agency. That's what it, that's its trade. Trades in deception. It's not all of a sudden going to change its spots and, and come out and be this open, transparent agency. Uh, you know, the National Security Agency, which sneaks on everyone all the time, including what we're saying right now, is not all of a sudden going to be going. Oh, let's, it's all, let's all just let's all just share everything. Let's just let's just provide the public with the truth. It's a fantasy, and so and I, I recognise that Steve doesn't, but that Steve would agree with me on that. But. You can't have a simple acknowledgement because it doesn't end there. The acknowledgement is not the end, it's the beginning. And they don't want a beginning. 
you know, the people who, who are desperately trying to, to understand this subject behind the scenes and trying to keep a lid on it to an extent that they can whilst simultaneously managing perceptions of it, they, they you know, they operate best in the shadows. Uh, and there's nothing in it for them to release this information to the public. Although I'm sure discussions have, have been held uh, over the over the decades to you know about the possibility of bringing this out in some way. But the, just think of the of the of the multitude of problems that arise from a so-called simple acknowledgement. You know, no one wants an acknowledgement. Essentially, is the end of is the end of our era. Um, and no one wants that. With you know, behind the scenes, it's all about maintaining the status quo. It's about maintaining the socio-economic order. And when you say that we're not alone in the universe, um, but moreover that they're actually here, or we've had interactions with them, then that's that's a whole whole other thing. Um, and it's even a very slippy slope to make the simple announcement that we've discovered microbial life, because that then starts to you know, starts to raise questions. Well, if, we've got, if it's definitely microbial life, then the laws of evolution dictate that it's probably evolved into intelligent life in the expanses of a vast universe. And if it's, involved, if it's, if it's evolved into intelligent life, all of a sudden, then we, we recognize that UFO reports have some substance to them. And in fact, ideas of alien visitation are, are, are much more plausible. And then that raises, that puts more pressure on, on, on the government. Um, so it's a very, very slippy slope. And, and they're completely disinclined to to get on that slope at all they'd rather just stay away from it well never mind let never mind microbial life that we have this this whole idea of a potential alien megastructure in this bizarre dimming star that we may have to deal with and we'll follow that story with with great interest uh, robbie sadly out of time uh congratulations on on the book and very quickly uh how do people uh, learn more uh yeah you can uh, visit my website which is silverscreensources.uk uh, the book is available uh, widely through uh, international sellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, etc. You can easily find it online and you can find more information about it and other articles on my work um, at silverscreensources.uk. So thanks very much. Robbie, thank you. Appreciate it. Good talking with you again. All right, uh, Victor, well, uh, your thoughts as we say goodnight? Well, once again, the, the level of clarity that this, this fellow has brought to the, the whole issue is another step up for us. That, that's what I believe. And anybody who wants to seek clarity on the issue, I think they really need to look at this book in, in a way, in an objective way, and to see that there's much more to this than just lights in the sky and, and all the other arguments that we use to try to figure out what the heck is going on. All right. Thank you, Victor. Zeland Communications. And uh, my thanks once again, Ian Robertson, Twisting the Niles and the Dobbs, Albert Vinzel, uh, for all his hard work as per usual. Back next week with a brand new program. Don't, uh, don't miss it. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.